Section 24 of The Wounded Name by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 8, Part 3. 6. It was partly with the idea of leaving the field free for Aymar to have his explanation with Madame de Morson that Laurent took himself off for a walk next morning, starting from the water meadows below the chateau. He walked for a good hour and a half, steering himself by the towers of Cécile on the rise, and accompanied all the time by the intense and quiet joy which had dwelt with him since last night, since Aymar had given him that overwhelming proof of his affection. For that acceptance of his was a greater happiness to Laurent than even the happiness of having something to offer him. Absorbed in this content, he was returning through the pastures, by the side of a hedge which divided one of the big fields from the next, when he was brought back to his surroundings by voices on the other side of it, a little ahead of him. He had advanced a few steps more, before he realized that one was undoubtedly a mag's. The other was a woman's. A Madame de Morson's? If so, his maneuver had not been very successful. However, he need not interrupt the interview, for the hedge was too tall and too thick for them to see him, and if he passed swiftly and quietly, they would probably not hear him either. Eavesdropping was naturally the last thought in his mind, since, for one thing, he knew the purpose of the meeting, and would certainly hear its result later from a mag. He quickened his pace to get past, the grass muffling his footfall, when, through the hedge, there burst these startling words, Oh, Aymar, you cannot be as cold as you seem. Oh, kiss me, and kiss me only once, and you will know that you are not. And the voice was Madame de Morson's. And Aymar's quick, Oh, you, Lali, you are mad, as the sun, was swallowed up in the vehemence of her passion. Oh, the sun, it is you, with your pallor and your unapproachableness and your wounded honor, and you would be safe with me, as you never will be with her. Oh, I do not care what you did. Aymar, Aymar. Laurent heard no more. He had fled stealthily back on his tracks. Oh, good heavens, poor Aymar. It was certain that the whole of this interview would never be related to him now. He made a wide detour, but when he approached the river some half-hour later, he pulled up again. A lady was leaning over the rail of the little bridge which he must traverse, staring into the water and swinging to and fro a tiny pink sunshade. It was Madame de Morson. Well, it was unlikely that she would want to kiss him. Raising his hat, he courageously passed her, noticing that she was more than usually pale, whereas he thought that she ought to have been red. She gave him, however, a rather absent but quite unembarrassed smile. It was Laurent himself who was embarrassed when, after search, he came on a mag before déjeuner in the hall. He had only just come in, and he had evidently been walking furiously, and was angry with something of the consuming anger of that penultimate day at Agbel. Yes, she knows everything, he said curtly, as he went past Laurent to the stairs. Everything but the cause, that is. 
but she will not tell what she knows. I wonder how you are so sure of that, thought Lugung, looking after his ascending figure. Wondering, also, despite himself, how that one-sided love scene had ended. Dejeuner then followed, not favoured by the presence of Madame de la Rochetterie, who, being slightly indisposed, was keeping her room. It might have gone better had she been there, though, to be sure, there was nothing wrong with Madame de Morson's self-possession. Aimag, who never addressed her, was steely, and, when the meal was over, became invisible. There seemed, however, no reason why Laurent should not go for a last ride on Igondel, and so, after bidding farewell to Madame de Morson, who was leaving Cécigne at two o'clock, he departed. 7. It fell, therefore, to avoid de Villecresne, to entertain the guest for the last half-hour of her stay, after the latter had duly made her farewells to Madame de la Rochetterie upstairs. It was to be presumed that whatever had taken place between them that morning, for Avoy could not be blind to his attitude at déjeuner. The master of the house would reappear in time to hand the departing visitor to her carriage. In the meantime, Madame de Morson sat ready in the salon, arrayed in a Russian mantle, of pale salmon-coloured cloth, ornamented with a border of maroon velvet and white silk cord. Oh, he is indeed a fidus Achates, that young man, she observed of Laurent de Courtomag when the latter had taken his leave. Pilates, Patroclus, and Euralus all rolled into one. How did you know I had so much classical lore? I must have imbibed it from poor Edouard. But I think I could better describe Monsieur de Courtemag as Sagassin on two legs. I've seen him looking at Aimard with very much the same expression. We owe him more than we can ever repay, said Avoy. She hated discussing anybody she liked with Eulalie de Morson. Oh, yes, indeed you do, agreed that lady. Nevertheless, it is dreadful to see our poor Aimard so changed. Worst of all was it to discuss a mag with her. He's getting stronger, replied Avoy briefly. But, mon Dieu, what he must have suffered, in his pride. Avoy winced. Yes, Pont de Rocher was a terrible blow. Oh, I was referring to the Bois de Fauvette, said Madame de Morson lazily. Oh, you mean his capture? Naturally, he felt that, at such a time. Avoy got up, went quickly to her work-table, and opened a drawer. What do you think of this new kind of embroidery, Eulalie? I've been wanting your opinion on it. Madame de Mouxon took the specimen brought to her, but she did not look at it. She looked up at the girl instead. Well, something happened to him before his capture, and he did not. Oh, I see that you do not want to discuss it. Oh, neither do I. But I must admit that I find it very interesting, the profound resemblance that there is at bottom between all men, however exceptional they seem to be. It is really something of a relief and to know that our dear Aimag is human, after all, as human as any other man. I've no idea what you mean, returned Avoy frigidly, intensely disliking words and tone and smile. The smile grew. No? And yet it is wonderful to think that today 
and just as in the Middle Ages. You remember the legend of the original Oiseleur, and how he lost the Chartier through a woman. Yes. Well, history is only a series of repetitions. I forgive the truism. As I say, I do not know what you are talking about, repeated a voice, but more warmly this time. Who has not a mag lost the Chartier? Well, if he did not exactly present that to a lady, he presented her with something more valuable, his good name. Avoy lifted a proud little head. Are you trying to inform me, Eulalie, that reporters introduced a woman into this story? No, ma chère. Reporters left her out, fortunately for our cousin. But she was there, all the same. I happen to know the true version, and I am willing to share it with you. I'm not quite sure, said a voice, considering her, that you always know what truth is, Eulalie. You are frank, quite like Tante Athenée for once. Merci. But I do know. It is others, you will find, who have tampered with it. Ah, my dear Avoy, with your little white ingenue's mind, if you knew. Oh, please drop these hints, Eulalie, and tell me straight out what you mean. Ah, with pleasure, replied Madame de Morson, arranging her mantle. Ask Aymar, then, whether he did not really send his famous letter to the enemy as the price of a woman's life. Absurd, exclaimed Madame de Villecresne, now thoroughly roused. I wonder you have not more sense. Eulalie smiled sweetly. Oh, I know why you are angry. You think that there is only one woman in the world for whom Aymar would do such a thing. Aymar would not do a thing like that for any woman. Again, the Angeny. I'll ask him. Indeed I shall not, cried Avoy contemptuously. No, perhaps you are wiser. When are you going to marry him? Ah, forgive my indiscretion. Yet, on the whole, I think I should get his confession out of him first, if I were you. A confession? A mag? Yes, even a mag. Have I not said that he has proved himself human, after all? Oh, listen, the Bonapartists had in their hands at the end of April a woman whom they were, apparently, going to shoot as a spy, because they suspected her of carrying information, as she had done before the Restoration. To save her, Aymar made a bargain and took the fearful risk he did, and lost. Eulalie, you are dreaming. Oh, it is you who are asleep, Mashag. I am trying to wake you, since you will have to come out of the trance some day. Of course, you think I am libeling Loiseleur. Well, you have only to ask him. Though, to be sure, he may have become so much more further human as to lie. I suppose we shall see him before I go. She looked at the clock. I have not yet made him my adieu. It is a libel, said a voice, her breath coming short. For no woman. Madame de Morson leant forward. For one woman, perhaps, a voice. For one. Ought you not to be proud? Such a hecatomb. And his good name. You see it, do you not? For surely you remember in whose hands you were on the night of April the 27th. 
but I faltered a boy, staring at her. I was in no danger, and there was no talk of shooting. Oh, is that so? I can well believe it. But Monsieur de Vaubarnier, who brought the news to Aymar here and acted as his intermediary, was crazed with fear for you. Avoy had sprung to her feet. Oh, it's impossible. It's... You are lying wickedly. I know that you are lying, for Aymar himself has told me all about the letter and why he sent it. It was a plan he had already made, and it was not sent to where I was at all. He would have known that I would rather a thousand times. But no, it is too absurd to pretend that I was in danger of being shot when I was treated with such courtesy. And more than absurd, wicked, she added, as a fresh aspect dawned upon her, and to make out that I, I, was the cause of Pont au Eulalie shrugged her shoulders in the salmon-colored mantle. Well, I think I hear a Mag's step, so you can easily have me proved a liar. Or rather, perhaps, learn that the Marquis de Vaubernier, from whom I had the story, is the romancer of the First Order. It was a Mag's step. In a moment more, he came in through the long window. Your carriage is at the door, madame, he said coldly to Eulalie. May I have the honor of conducting you to it? But Madame de Moxon was looking down, smiling and silent, contemplating her toe on the edge of the hearth. A voice's eyes were fixed on her cousin. Then she suddenly sat down, as if her limbs would no longer sustain her. But it was she who broke the silence. Eulalie has been telling me something about you, which I do not believe. A something completed Madame de Moxon in measured tones, which I elicited from Monsieur de Vaubernier. No, not at Aix. As I told you, I did not see him there. It was at Chambéry. You must not blame the old gentleman in his horror at what had happened to you, Aymar, which he knew and told me he let out why it had happened. And now I've incautiously mentioned it to Avoy, since she is so deeply concerned in it, and find that you had decided, wisely, I dare say, to keep her in the dark. Need I say how much I regret? No, broke in Aymar, standing before her very tall and straight. No, you need not add a lie to what you have done. Your carriage, as I said, is at the door. And he made a gesture towards the hall. His eyes were blazing. Eulalie de Moxon looked up at him easily, admiringly. What I've done, my dear Aymar, how well you look in a rage, is merely to tell the truth, of which you have been sparing. But it is not the truth, repeated a voice in the voice of one who, having been mortally stabbed, denies the wound. Madame de Moxon rose in an unconcerned manner and gathered together her processions. Well, as Aymar does not seem anxious to have a witness of his answer to that statement, I will leave you together. Au revoir, ma chère. Avoy took no notice. Aymar was already at the door, holding it open. Eulalie went slowly past him, and looking him in the face as she did so, and said, very low, You would have done better to strike the bargain. 
and now you will see the quality of her love. Yet suddenly her own face was convulsed, and she turned it aside. He did not vouchsafe a word or a look, but, standing on the threshold, said to Celestin, who, with her maid, was waiting in the hall, hand Madame de Mousson to her carriage, and went into the salon again, shutting the door behind him. 8. A boy was standing before the great hearth, her back to him, her face buried in her hands. He stood a moment at the door, looking at her, and then he crossed the room towards her. At his step she dropped her hands, and clasping them hard in front of her, and without turning towards him, without even glancing at him, said in an almost inaudible voice, Amag, say that it is not true. No, to pile more lies on those the orchard had drawn from him. He could not do it. He had come to that hour which he had sacrificed so much to avert, when he must tell her of her innocent share in his ruin. He set his teeth for a moment as he took out the knife. If only it were destined for his breast and not hers. Will you tell me exactly what she said to you? Still not looking at him, very briefly, as one half stunned, as she told him. The brutal manner in which she had herself been enlightened was clear enough. But Aimag had hardly a thought to spare for Eulalie, her perfidy, her bitter revenge. What mattered was this stricken, pitifully bewildered little avoy, so pale in her grey gown, who would not look at him while she waited for the denial which he would not give, but only repeated again and again, in a voice which made his heart ache. Amag, say it is not true, say it is not true. And then, how can it be true? How could you have done it to save me? You did not know that I'd been stopped. You said so. I wanted to spare you all I could, he answered very sadly. Not to spare me? Why? What had I done? Nothing. Nothing. And that was why. But I was in no danger. You did not even know that I was detained. And she says that Godfather was mixed up in it. Yet you never said a word of it. And now she was looking at him, indeed. Is it possible that down there in the orchard, when my heart was breaking about you, you took me in your arms and comforted me with lies? The hated word stung him a little in the midst of everything else. How could I tell you the truth, my darling, when, as you say, your heart was breaking like that? And although I sent the letter to save you, it was part of a ruse, a plan I'd made beforehand. Oh, can't you believe me, Avoy? But it is also crazy, she exclaimed. I in danger of being shot. I, to whom they apologized. And Godfather, what was he doing in it? He never came there. And you really thought, you. And poor child, poor lamb, so bewildered under the touch of the knife. Oh, to get through this barbarity quickly. Dearest, I will tell you exactly what happened. Oh, but sit down, for pity's sake. He seized and swung forward a little gilt chair. If only I'd never given that woman the chance of springing it on you like this, 
if only I'd guessed that she knew. But she recoiled from him. She would none of the chair. She went back as far as the carved stone of the hearth and put a hand to that. And then she faced him. Be quick, Amag, be quick. I'm frightened. So, standing in front of her, and in front of the proud, indifferent swans of their blazon, he told her shortly the other, the true, complete story. But it had a strange sound to his own ears now. There was fear indeed in her eyes when he had finished. And when he said, Do you see, my dear, a little, why I wanted you never to know, and tried to take her hand, she drew it away and shook her head. How can they both be true? That you did it for a military reason, which you told me first, and that you did it to save me, because you imagined, imagined, that I was in danger. Imag looked down at her, full of a great pity. Do you not see, he said again, the plan was there, ready, and I used it, that was all. Trembling visibly and twisting her hands a little, and she said, No, I cannot. I cannot help feeling. Which story am I to believe? Or perhaps you have another. Avoy, he exclaimed, flushing scarlet. I wish you had. I wish you had. How am I to believe, first, that you sent the letter to the imperialist commander at Axon, at a ruse, and then that you sent it to Colonel Richard at Saint-Quazec, to save me, who was not in danger, you have told me both of those things. Amag, Amag, you seem somebody I've never known. You, you, to do a disgraceful thing, to do it for me, and then not daring to tell me, to lie about it. For a moment he knew dizziness. They were both drowning in a sea too strong for either of them. Yet surely there must be some raft to which one might cling. And the love of years could not fail like this. Avoy, I swear to you, that the two stories are not incompatible. The plan was a ruse. It remained a ruse, even though I used it as I did. Oh, but how am I to know that you did not make up the whole of what you told me in the orchard? So much of it was untrue. You admit that. What portions of it can I really feel safe in believing? She suppressed a sob. Did you ever meet Monsieur de Saint-Étienne and make that plan at all? He gave her a look, but in words he did not answer. He could not. Who had the knife now? Oh, I cannot help hurting you, cried a voice desperately. And do you think that it does not hurt me, too? For you never sent that letter to Axon. That was a lie. And you did know that I was detained. Amag had found his voice again. Yes, unfortunately. He turned away for a moment. The waves had grown mountains high, yet there was but one thing he would appeal to. If you would only try to understand, he said, facing her again, and he said it very quietly. She was trembling and very pale. Her eyes were full of tears as she answered. I do understand. I do begin to. I understand now why you have taken no steps to clear yourself. 
the story that was good enough to dupe me with in the orchard is not good enough for the world. Yes, I do understand. You are not, as I'd always dreamed, the living embodiment of our motto, the very soul of honor. He made a faint gesture. And then, nothing that I can say is of any use. But she went on in her blind anguish. If a saint, yes, if our blessed lady herself had come to tell me that you could do this, and then lie about it unto me, I would not have believed it, Amar. I could not. And yet, you have done it. Yes, I have done it. He looked at her steadily. And you are not going to try to understand, or to pardon. It is not a thing one could ever pardon, she flashed out. You have sold your honor. With that, the blade was full in his own heart, so keen that its stab was partly physical, and involuntarily he put his hand to his side. But he took it instantly away, and gripped the back of the little gilt chair near him. He was the color of ashes. Yet his head was high. No, that I've not done. And there's only one part of it which needs pardon, he said firmly. And that is that to save you needless pain, I told you some things which were not true. For what I did do, I do not ask your pardon. You can say that after Pont au I can say that after Pont au What I deliberately slew in the hope of saving you was not my men, but my own instinct. It is not in your power or anyone's to pardon me for that sacrifice. The very look he gave her, at once proud, tender, unyielding, and hurt to death, the very yearning of her heart for him, only met that other tide of horrified dismay in fiercer tumult and foam. Avoy de Villecresne burst into tears, and crying incoherently, I cannot understand you. I never shall. This will kill me, I think. But I cannot bear to see you, as you are now. Turned and went quickly out of the open window, leaving him alone. And Amag stood quite still, looking, not after her disappearing figure, but at the old Spanish leather screen, with its embossed border of pomegranates and its faded gold, which had for some minutes been to him the background to her slim body in its narrow gown, her aureole of burnished hair even, in a sense to her passionate and bewildered voice, looking at it almost as if he did not realize that she was gone. Then he, too, went from the room. 9. Oh, my dear fellow, cried Laurent, bursting rather unceremoniously into his friend's bedroom, Oh, what a divine creature your mare is! How oh, today's was the best gallop I've ever had! Oh, it is a thousand shames that you yourself... Oh, what on earth are you doing, Aymar? For in the middle of the room, with his back to him, Aymar was on his knees before a little portmanteau. He did not look up, and for a moment did not answer, but folded and refolded a coat which had previously been lying in a huddle in the valise. I'm going away, he said at length. Going away? repeated Laurent, stupefied. And now? Well, not today, surely. 
and where? How oh, eh, Mark? He came towards him with the intention of putting a hand on his shoulder, but before he reached him, Aymar had risen and was at the window. Standing there, still with his back to him, he said very low, Everything has gone now, Laurent. Everything. The breeze fluttered the curtain, and except for that, there was silence. But the hopeless pain in his voice seemed to go on vibrating after he had spoken. Who has told her? asked Laurent, after a long pause. Eulalie. She had got it out of Vaubarnier, after all. And she, Madame de Villecresne. But there seemed no way in which the question could be put. Its answer, indeed, was the little valise gaping on the floor. Aymar turned round. Madame de Morson did it deliberately, from malice, in the worst way she could. And the shock. I tried to explain, but having had to lie the other day, it was too difficult for her. My cousin. He broke off and indicated the valise. I must finish that. I suppose they will have taken the saddle off Hirondelle by now. Very gently, Laurent laid his hand on his shoulder. Mon ami, you cannot go like this. And you cannot ride Hirondelle or any other horse just yet. Aymar shook his head. Oh, it is of no use, Laurent. I must go. You have galloped Hirondelle. Besides, she does not pull. And perhaps you will fasten this for me. I think I've all I want. Laurent looked at him, deeply troubled. Oh, what was he to do? Oh, you will let me come too, then, Aymar, will you not? Oh, any horse will serve for me. No, I'm afraid I cannot let you come. Impossible to be hurt or offended. The situation was beyond that. Oh, but where are you going? Once more Aymar shook his head, and, as Laurent had not moved, knelt down again by the valise. But Laurent lifted it to a chair and strapped it up in silence. As he finished, there came the earthquake quiver of the door, which testified that Sagassin had let himself down against it outside. When he looked round, Aymar was standing motionless, gazing at something in his hand. It was on the floor. It must have been in the pocket of that coat, which I was wearing the night it broke. And I come on it again now. Laurent came to look. It was the lost Chartier, symbol now of so much that was lost. Aymar gave a little laugh, and crushing it together, threw it across the room towards the fireplace. Laurent had an impulse, soon gone, and to protest, but what did it matter now? Oh, you will at least write to me, to Paris, he said, pleadingly. Aymar, do consider. Yes, I will write. He had pulled down a cloak. It is only that I must get away to, to think things over. I've written a note to my grandmother. I dare not see her. She would guess. An idea struck Laurent. He went up to him and put a hand on his shoulder once more. Aymar, unless you will give me your word of honor that you're not going away to do what you spoke of in the cave, 
I shall accompany you. And the faintest trace of a smile came. Oh, dear Laurent, I give you my word. May I at least come down the avenue with you? Oh, please, and forgive my leaving you, your last night. I am ashamed, but I cannot stay till tomorrow. Laurent made a gesture. How oh, as if you ever needed to apologize to me. When they got to the door of the room, he said suddenly, Has Madame de Morson left the house? Yes, about an hour ago. Thank heaven, because oh, I suppose men have shot women before now. Again, there was an almost imperceptible flicker of amusement. Oh, who do you propose should do it, Laurent? You or I? Oh, I, by God! And don't tell me which way she has gone. Long ago, said Aimard de la Rochetterie reflectively, his hand on the doorknob, his eyes wide and dark with pain fixed on him. Long ago I found, Laurent, that there never was a partisan like you, nor a friend, nor one who understood so well. How oh, you do understand why I must go alone now. Yes, said Laurent, and he added, with a miserable little laugh, well, there is another partisan on the other side of the door who will not, however. You had better take him with you. No, answered Aymar, opening the door. Sagasin was up in a second, his eyes on the cloak over his arm. Go in and lie down, Sagasin, said his master. You cannot come with me. The great dog gave him a long, melancholy look, licked his hand, and went in like a puzzled but obedient child. There happened to be nobody in the stable-yard when they got there. Igondel was still bridled. Laurent slipped her saddle on again and helped Aymar into it. He walked down the avenue by him in a dream. How nothing seemed to be true. He had never seen his friend on a horse before and thought he should never henceforward see him, in memory, anywhere else. Save for his face, he looked so supremely himself there. But how long would he be able to stay in the saddle? At the gates, Aymar spoke at last. I think, perhaps, that I will go to Evenot for a little, and that is instead of taking Sagasin with me. He had reined up, I will not sleep in a ditch, Laurent. I will not throw away all the care, all the unspeakable care, you have lavished on this very useless body, and I will write to you soon. And for this going, forgive me again. He bent from the saddle and kissed him on either cheek. Then Igondel carried him between the stone-balled gateposts. The sunlight struck across him, after that he was engulfed in the green gloom of the chestnuts. He did not turn round. Laurent watched him for a little, and then he suddenly leant against the post with his arm over his eyes. When he removed it, the road was empty. End of section 24